Today, too, if you weren't here at prayer, um, this is Trinity Sunday. It's a, it's, it's a long tradition of after Pentecost to celebrate God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. Because through the church calendar, we've gone through Advent, we've gone through Easter and Pentecost, and so all three members of the Trinity have been celebrated. And this is the day when uh, we remember that rich, rich um, doctrine of the Trinity. And I said earlier, and I'll say again, um, <laughs> If you are making a faith up, you don't introduce the doctrine of the Trinity to people. You don't say, oh, trust me, no, Christianity is a great faith to believe in. You just got to have this like weird thing that none of us understand. You don't make that up, which is why to me, Christianity is, is a revelation from the true and living God given to humanity because nobody sits down in a dark room and says, I think a great religion would be based around this incomprehensible concept called the Trinity. No one makes this stuff up. And so we have this great um, reality in the triune God, eternally existent, and we find our rooting in him. So a little bit of that will come out in Proverbs 8. I think you'll see it's very appropriate. So let's, uh, let's pray for the text, and then um, we will go through this. And then don't forget we have our feast tonight after, after the message. Okay. O wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end, heaven, to the other, earth, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence, that we, your people, may live in the paths that you have intended your human creatures to live, that like all of creation, we may live in the order that you have created, giving you honor and praise by our very breath, by our very being. Lord, break the stubbornness and rebellion from us and let your wisdom lead us and teach us as we open your word. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to the Lake Arrowhead Times book review. We have a new one hot off the press for you. Uh, it's actually a rather controversial book. Lady Wisdom has published an autobiography called Buy Me King's Rule. Yep, it's a little controversial, and here's my review of it. Um, she has made some astonishing claims, and, well, let's just be frank, some of them are quite arrogant. Here's some of my takeaways from the book. She claims to know how to make anybody wealthy. Like, we haven't heard a book like that before. She claims kings and governments receive authority from her as if she is the divine power bestowing blessings upon all. She claims to hate her is to love death. Well, that is the center of arrogance, if I've ever heard it. And she claims to have been involved, catch this, in the creation of the earth. Yep, this is her new autobiography, By Me, King's Rule. And she's actually here tonight to share with us some of her excerpts from her new autobiography, visiting us graciously, on her world book tour. So, um, here are four of the excerpts from her, from her autobiography. Chapter 8, verse 1, first excerpt, wisdom's words. She tells us about her words. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand, where everybody can see her and hear her. 
Besides the gate in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O man, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So take my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. I can see now why, and you can see now why this book has created quite the stir. These are audacious claims. Wisdom's words, she says, her words are pure. I will speak noble things in verse 6. My lips will speak what is right. Verse 7, she utters truth. Verse 8, um, her words are not twisted. Verse eight, they're, verse 9, they're straight. So her words are pure. But her words are also sure. Listen to this arrogant cockiness in verses 10 to 11. Take my instruction instead of silver? Verse 11, for wisdom is better than jewels? Really? And all that you compare cannot, all that you desire cannot compare with her. Really? All I desire cannot compare with her. Pretty audacious claims to make for oneself. In verse 12, we come to the second excerpt of her autobiography. Verse 12 through 21, she talks about her worth. Be one thing if I told you about her worth, but she tells us about her own worth. She's going to promise you royalty, and she's going to promise you prosperity. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign. And rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, don't we all? And those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. My yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Well, you want to be a princess or a prince? You want some money in your pocket? Lady Wisdom's got the message for you in her new autobiography, only $39.99. Third excerpt, Wisdom's Works. Here she tells us, this is basically all the things I've done, my resume, verse 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. So she's older than the mountains. Before he has made, thank you, before he has made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit 
so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth? Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So not only does she predate creation, but she participated in the creation. Very controversial and very audacious. And then the last excerpt of her book, Wisdom's Warranty, verse 32 to the end. This is what she guarantees to us. Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. All right, I will stop being your crude and critical uh, book reviewer, and now we'll look at this text in a, in a realistic manner here. Um, yeah, Lady Wisdom's autobiography. And she does, doesn't she? make some pretty audacious claims. I will give you wealth. My words are perfect. Um, I was there before the foundations of the world, and uh, I will give you grace from the Lord if you follow me. But if you don't, you hate yourself. You're going to harm yourself. I mean, this is essentially what she says. And it can come across as arrogant, can't it? Can you imagine if um, I was up here telling you guys I just published my own autobiography? And you're like, you're not a day over 40. Why do you think you deserve an autobiography? Because I'm amazing. Oh, and here's everything I've done. Here's all the reasons that my sermons are awesome. My words are awesome. <laughs> here's uh, why um, if you just follow my tricks, you will lose weight. You will gain wealth. And everybody will love you. will win fl- friends and influence people. Um, by the way, I know the secrets of the universe. I'm in touch with the divine like that, like you are not. And yep, you follow my advice. You will always live. If you don't, you'll die because my ways are the highways. Like you guys would think what a selfish, what an arrogant pastor, never going back to Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks ever again. Someone put a big X heresy right there. And oh my goodness, if I ever publish an autobiography of such tone, please do that. You have my permission. But I haven't, fortunately. Um, Yeah. Okay. But her autobiography coming in chapter eight is actually well-placed because what we're meant to do is you might remember last week, we saw the forbidden woman in chapter seven and the father who has just finished his last of 11 lessons to the sons and daughters of Israel has warned against the prostitute, the forbidden woman. And we looked at how that temptress works. Now we see a different woman. And remember, we we haven't seen her since chapters 1 and 3. This is Lady Wisdom, who is our tutor coming alongside the Father to affirm and say, everything the Father is teaching you is good. This is the way of wisdom. And she comes as our tutor to say, here's how life works. As you'll remember, our definition of wisdom in the Proverbs is living in the grain of God's universe. The creator made all things, and he made all things to run a certain way. The wise go with that direction. The fool will go against it and then run into splinters and shards all his life. That's what the Proverbs are trying to do. Lady Wisdom is our tutor, 
And here, well-timed, now that the father's last lesson is done, she comes to give us her autobiography. In other words, why is Lady Wisdom superior to the forbidden woman? Or why is Lady Wisdom the greatest tutor ever to offer instruction to the sons and daughters of mankind? Why should we give Lady Wisdom the kind of attention that the Father's been trying to tell us to give her and that she has been trying to get from us? Why is she worth it? Philip wants to know. <laughs> Not Philip, but uh, sorry, other baby. <laughs> yeah, he wants to know. Um, okay, so here's why. Here's why Wisdom can publish an autobiography like this, and here's why she is the best tutor we can have for success in life. Because first, she predates and participated in creation. Okay, if you are before creation and were there and had a part in creation, you know how the cosmos works. You know how the human being is supposed to function. It's like when my car goes clank, clank, clank and something doesn't work. I was not there before the car was made and I was not part of the plans of making the car. I don't know the first thing about how those things work. I know, I'm a man that doesn't know that. Um, so I'm in trouble. I can't sit there and go, oh, well, this is exactly what you need to do, babe. We need to f-. Like, I would be a fool to actually presume such knowledge because I know nothing about this car and how it works. The maker, though, knows how it works. And so you take it to a dealer or someone that, or not a dealer, a mechanic who knows how to fix these things because he knows how it works. Lady Wisdom knows how the human being works. She knows how the created world works. She knows what the creator had in mind when he made it. So by predating and participating in the creation of the world, she knows more than we do. Thus, her counsel is definitive and cannot be rivaled. Who can claim to have a greater insight into how we should live than Lady Wisdom? Her counsel is definitive because she was there and saw the plans laid out and saw the construction from the ground up. That's why she can say what she says. And that's why, according to her autobiography, By Me, King's Reign, she tells us that seeking prosperity and seeking royalty through her will protect us from their dehumanizing power. In other words, if I seek prosperity and I seek royalty and power because I want it in my ways, in my grabbing, I will dehumanize myself like every other tyrant on the planet of the earth, like people that you know, because I will be reaching beyond my human capacity. I will be going for that which I was not made to do. It was do I'm doing it in the wrong way. But Lady Wisdom can show us the way to these things. All right. The controversy. So you guys get the sense, like, yeah. Wow, Lady Wisdom is saying some pretty bold things, but nothing is as bold as verse 22 to 31, where she claims, practically, to be a goddess. That's what it can come across as. And this would be the greatest buzz if she was to produce an autobiography like this. Um, what people would be stirring about. Look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old, the Lord possessed me. Is she? What does she mean by possessed? In verse twenty-two, is she fathered by God? 
like he begets her? The Hebrew suggests that. It can suggest that because in Genesis 4 verse 1, it says that Eve begot a son, Cain. This is the same word. God begets wisdom. Eve begets Cain. So it could just mean that um, wisdom is begotten by God, which means of the same substance, in a sense, coming out from him. Um, But that would also kind of make it sound like she's equal with God, you know? Coming forth from God. Like, you mean like the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father? Is that what that means? Or is she created by God? Is she she the first of his creative acts, and then she's with him for the rest of the created acts? That's actually when the... uh, when the, Septu- when, the, when the Jews who were speaking Greek um, began to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, uh, they actually translated this, the Lord created me at the beginning, beginning of his work. We, we don't really know for sure what Lady Wisdom is saying other than she was somehow there with the Father at the creation of the world. Was she co-existent with him, or co-eternally existent with him, or was there a time when she was not, and then she was? These are important questions, because ultimately, what it sounds like, or could sound like, if this is read too much into, is that Lady Wisdom is a member of the Holy Trinity. There are similarities. For example, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we find that intriguing conversation You remember God's creating the world, day one, day two, day three, and so forth. And then in Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, suddenly, in a conversation, we don't know who's with him. He says, let us, let us make man in our image. Who's us? Is Lady Wisdom there, as she claims to be? Or is he talking to God the Son and and God the Spirit? Is this God the Father? Who's talking? Who's the us? Is this the host of angels? She does say in verse 30, I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. She was beside him at the creation. Was she part of the us that God was addressing? Or is this merely, are we looking at an early hint that the Jews somehow knew that there was more than just God the Father alone, but there was some sort of a trinity, but they weren't quite putting their finger on it, and Lady Wisdom was their best guess at something else? I mean, are we seeing a foreshadow of the Trinity? <laughs> We're raising a lot of questions, aren't we? Can you imagine me scratching my head as I'm reading this? Like, what, what, what does Lady Wisdom mean here? If you guys want to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we see some intriguing comments by the Apostle Paul, which the church fathers for the first few centuries of the church echo, and in short, what I'll tell you is that Paul seems to think that Christ is linked to Lady Wisdom in this passage. Colossians 1.15, he says this, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, wouldn't a Jewish reader most of the early church knew the scriptures like the Jews did, wouldn't they immediately link their minds to Lady Wisdom saying, I was there the first of his works at the beginning? What are you saying, Paul? That Christ is the firstborn of all creation? Of course, he doesn't by that mean that Christ was created. He means um, 
The firstborns, when, when he's saying firstborn here, it's the, tight, it's, the, it's the position of the firstborn who would inherit the father's property. So when he says firstborn of all creation, what he's saying is Christ is the inheritor of all creation. For by him, verse 16, by him all things were created. Lady Wisdom claimed that she was a workman working right beside him. That by her, creation was created. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Remember in um, verse 15 and 16 of Proverbs, she said that by me kings rule. And here, through Christ, uh, monarchies and, 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 and um, ro- uh, royal authorities are established. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, like Lady Wisdom, and in him all things hold together. Boy, what we find is this, what is astonishing about Proverbs chapter 8 is it seems that we have here a foreshadow of Christ. That before Christ was even known, here Solomon sees that something was there with the Father in the creation of the world. Something that was there alongside him that he was creating through and with. But Solomon, of course, doesn't have the full revelation. It's tantalizingly shadowy. However, I say that Lady Wisdom here is a shadow of Christ to come or a type of Christ to come. What's super important is that we understand that Paul does not ever say that Lady Wisdom is literally Christ. That actually started to happen in the early church. And it set off the first great controversy of the church. Have you heard of the Arian controversy? One person maybe? Wow, I'm actually impressed because most people don't know anything about church history. Two people, cool. The Arian controversy uh, actually centered, among other things, around Proverbs chapter 8. And this is actually what leads us to... um, this Arian controversy is what set the church to establish not just a belief in the Trinity, but a doctrine of the Trinity, a teaching of the Trinity. It was assumed, but when this controversy stirred up, the church realized, whoa, we need to clarify what we're talking about because some people are taking this to a whole nother level. So here's the background of the Arian controversy. Early Christianity was seen as fools, they weren't taken seriously because they talked about God, a God whom you cannot see. So most of the pagan world's like, you have a God you can't see? You guys are you're silly. You don't know what you're talking about. So what some of the church leaders began to do was they began using things that the Greeks of the world would have already known to help them as a step to Christ. Here's what they used. The, the Greek philosophers the ancient Greek philosophers, actually talked about there being a being far above the heavens and above all the gods, a single being. So much so that these philosophers actually said that all the idols are images of humanity. Our gods, Zeus, and so forth, these are just creations of humanity. There's something bigger and above and transcendent above all that. And that actually appealed to a lot of the Greeks. They said, now we understand what you mean by your god. And so this won over quite a few people. But here's the problem. 
If God is this, this like great supreme being, this uncreated, unchanging, transcendent being, then how do you talk about him coming to earth? How do you talk about him taking on a human body? How do you talk about him actually stooping to have a relationship with human beings like you and me? Because in the Greek mind, a God that was that great cannot come down into his created world and be with them. So that's when the Christians uh, really began to emphasize, okay, well, that's where Christ comes in. The Logos in John chapter 1. The Christ, he comes as this bridge between the uncreated, unchanging God and the created and changing human beings. Cool. So now we have this mediator, this bridge, Christ, linking us to God the Father. Okay. But here's where that became a problem. Because without clearly defining the role of Christ here, some people, if you were to draw a circle between the transcendent God, Christ, and creation, some people would circle God and Christ as God, and then the creation down here as on its own. But Arius was circling Christ and creation as together, and God above them. Or in other words, Arius was basically saying that Christ is part of the creation, not part of God. Okay, so this is the controversy. It occurred in Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th century, early 4th century. And the issue was, is Christ co-eternal with God? Two figures. Arius, he's our bad guy, and Alexander. Arius was a popular priest in Alexandria. This is where the problem came, because he was popular. Alexander was the bishop of Alexandria. So he had the authority passed down to him from the other authorities to rule and lead the church in Alexandria. Um, Here's what Arius said. He said that there was a time when Christ was not. In other words... The word was not co-eternal with the father. The word was the first created of all creatures because he reasoned that if we said Christ was co-eternal with the father, that would ruin monotheism. It would make God not one, but two. And now we're worshiping two gods. That was his reasoning. And so he would, he would have appealed to Proverbs chapter eight and said, see, Christ was possessed. He was brought forth. There was a time when he was not, but then there was a time when he was. Yes, he's a great creature. He's the highest of all creation, but he's still, there was a time when he was not. Well, Alexander, the bishop, remember, he had a big problem with this. He said Christ was co-eternal with the Father. Therefore, the word cannot, Christ cannot be created. If he's co-eternal and if he's God, there was never a time when he was not. He always was with the Father from the beginning. Because if we said that Christ was created, we're threatening his divinity. And if we threaten his divinity, then the church would either have to cease to worship Christ as God or have to admit that we are worshiping a creature. Alexander didn't like that at all. And I hope that you don't like that at all either. Okay, so this was like a private spew, you know, spat between theological minds for a while, right? It'd be like Gio and I talking about these lofty things. It's like, no one ever knows about it. Not that we talk about them, but never mind. It's a bad illustration. Um, but it becomes public when Alexander assumed his responsibility as a bishop, and part of the responsibility of a bishop is to protect the church. 
And so he feared that Arius' views were heretical, and he publicly declared them as such. Arius' teachings are not true, they're dangerous, and he stripped him of his ministry position. It's what a bishop's supposed to do. But Arius rejected his master's decision. Arius appealed to the popular crowd who loved him. And then he wrote letters to all the bishops around Alexandria, whom were once his former students, and got them all on his side. This is when it became public. And so in the streets of Alexandria was a pro-Arius protest, chanting his slogans such as, there was a time when he was not, there was a time when he was not. And this is when it got ugly, and now it was in the public square. Newspapers are writing about it. People are talking about it in the pubs or whatever, and, and this is, it got public. And, and, and word reached Emperor Constantine. Emperor Constantine saw this as dangerous to the kingdom. If the church is dividing, then the kingdom might divide. So Constantine steps in, and he calls for the first time in history— a council of all of the church's bishops to one meeting. And oh, this must have been the most astonishing moment. The year is 325 AD. It's in the town called Nicaea. It's in Asia Minor. It's close to Constantinople where Emperor Constantine ruled. That does not mean I'm done. <laughs> um, it's too early. Okay. Um, Roughly 300 bishops respond and come. Emperor paid all their expenses. Like, why not? We're going to go over there and have a good... Yeah. So they come over. Uh, 300 bishops from around the world. Now, imagine this. Okay? You might remember your church history. Constantine, when he became the emperor and became a Christian, he stopped what was real oppressive persecution throughout the world. His, his reign stopped that persecution. So these bishops coming together, many of them would have been bearing the marks physical marks on their body of their sufferings for Christ. Many would have just come out of jail. Many would have been exiled. Many of them would have been tortured. And now they're seeing each other. Some of them, they've only heard of each other or or read letters from. Now they're seeing each other for the first time. And imagine this, for the first time, they see with their own eyes the universality of Christianity. We had no idea there were bishops in Britannia and Gaul and uh, Arabia and Turkey and Egypt and so forth, right? Justo Gonzalez, he's a church historian, he says this, and I thought this just captures it. For the first time in the history of Christianity, they had before their eyes physical evidence of the universality of the church. So cool. Now, Arius was not a bishop. So that means he was not invited. So he had one of his henchmen, Eusebius, uh, lead the Arian party at this meeting. Now, Eusebius and Arius were so convinced in their viewpoint that they assumed all we've got to do is give a clear outline of our teaching and the entire council will say, oh, sorry, we misunderstood you. It's all, it must have just been a biz, this big thing. That, yeah, okay, we understand. So they really thought that. So apparently when Eusebius reads the statement of, of Arius' beliefs in front of the entire bishops, a great scandal occurred. Now, most of the bishops are not from Egypt, right? They're from around the world. And most of them are like, oh, we vaguely heard about this controversy, but we don't really care. Most of them are just hoping for a peaceful compromise to keep the church unified. But when, Ari, or when, when Eusebius read Arius' beliefs out loud, suddenly everybody 
felt urgency about this matter. That's how uh, heretical and how dangerous the views were to their ears. And what happened was all these indifferent bishops suddenly stood up and, and shouts recorded by one historian said, they shouted, you lie, you blasphemy, you heresy, or that's heresy. And then they tore the speech from Eusebius's hands, shredded it into pieces and trampled it under their feet. This is what we think about your views. Now they decide, and now the council moved to not just talk about the controversy, but to condemn the controversy in the clearest possible language. So they immediately go to the scriptures and try to pull out passages which are going to affirm that Christ is co-eternal with the Father. But they felt the language of scripture a little bit limiting. Not that scripture doesn't say that. But if you're trying to clearly and unmistakably condemn Arianism, you need specific language. And so they quickly found that they can't just be limited to scripture. And they began to draft the first creed of the Christian church. And the creed is called the Nicene Creed. And this is how it reads. Now, it went through a couple drafts to get clearer as time went on, but this Nicene Creed comes, I'm going to read the finished form, it comes from this gathering. And you'll hear how they're specifically aiming at Arianism to say, Christ is not a created creature, he is co-eternal and one with the Father. They say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Now, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now they get very specific. Eternally begotten of the Father. The word begotten is different than created. To create something, Pastor Brandon can create a statue. I can't really, but it, you know, I can create something that looks like it. I shaved the block, right? I created something. But this statue is completely separate from me. But Pastor Brandon begets Atticus and Avalyn because they are part of me. A beaver makes dams. A beaver begets beavers. Understand? So their language is not Christ is created of the Father. He's eternally begotten. He is of the Father. Eternally begotten of the Father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. See how specific they are just attacking Arianism. Of one being with the Father, through him, all things were made. So now we can talk about him as the one who's active in creation. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. From the Virgin Mary is important. He actually had human flesh from her womb. He, Mary was not just a channel by which God came through to get into the world and remained untouched and just this divine being. Like, yes, he's a divine being, but he actually was made from Mary's womb. So the wording's important there. He was, he was true human, um, became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That's where the, the original creed ended. And then they had some specific things saying, we condemn anyone who adheres to these points of Arianism. But then later they developed, okay, 
Okay, so we, we've, 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 we've established this clear connection between Christ and the Father, co-eternal and of the same substance, but different people, different persons, one substance. But um, we haven't clarified the Holy Spirit. So a little bit later, they added this part to the creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that's universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's the great Nicene Creed. This creed is the standard for all Christian belief in every single section of Christianity. Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians adhere to the Nicene Creed. Catholic, Roman Catholic Christians adhere to the Nicene Creed. Evangelicals and Protestants and Calvary Chapelites and you should and me should adhere to the Nicene Creed. This is our uh, criteria. If you, if at any point of the Nicene Creed you defer, you are technically not a Christian. And this is why it was created. So we see that the decision and the wisdom of Lord, the Lord leading the church brought us together to show his revelation to us that Christ was not created, but he was co-eternal with the Father. So, God is one essence in nature, eternally existing in three persons. One essence, existing in three persons. So that means he is unity, one identity, but he's also diversity, three persons, three distinct persons. See, what this means is that if you're unity and diversity, if you're one essence, one substance, but three distinct persons, it means that you are a union without absorption. Okay, sometimes you make things one, all the ingredients of a cake come together, and then you bake the cake, and then they all get absorbed into the cake. The cake is now the thing, and you lose all the other elements. Um, but now this, the Trinity, and this is what's important for the Christian, is that it is these three persons who are unified as one in the same substance, yet they remain distinct because in their union, the Father doesn't absorb the Son, and now he's gone, he's into the, he's the Father now, and, and the Son doesn't absorb the Spirit. They all are the same, yet remaining distinct. And this is what Christ, or this is what God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit does with the Christian, is he brings us into his fellowship, and yet doesn't absorb us into the great transcendent thing out there. That's like a lot of other, like, New Age and Eastern religions. It's like, we just get absorbed into the deity. We don't get absorbed into the deity. We get included in his nature. We share in his fellowship. We're part of the Trinity. And yet, and yet we are not absorbed into God. We remain created mortal. Well, not mortal. We'll be live forever. But we remain created beings. And I remain myself. God doesn't call me to follow him. And then says, Brandon's... He's now just like Nacelle. And just like William. And just like Patty. Just replicas of what I want. He's retained our individuality while bringing us into his union. That's the importance. So God, um, the Trinity, is the eternal fellowship of God. What this tells us is that God is a fellowship. He is a relationship. God is not a static thing out there. Just kind of, yep, I'm just managing things here. He is by nature love. He is by nature fellowship. He is by nature relationship. This is why God cannot resist to pursue every created creature 
and to bring them into his relationship. It's in his nature to come after us because the Trinity, Father eternally adoring the Son, the Son eternally adoring the Father, the Father eternally adoring the Spirit, the Spirit eternally adoring the Father, and the Spirit eternally adoring the Son, and the Son eternally adoring the Spirit, all, it's, they're, they're all equally giving glory to each other and equally receiving glory from each other. And that makes a never-ending, eternal, co-exist, co-eternal, co-eternal cycle of love, of worship, of fellowship, of union, of happiness. <laughs> it means that God is eternally and infinitely and perfectly happy. Every He has no need. He doesn't need something because in his nature is this forever adoration and love. Jonathan Edwards, wonderful words here on the Trinity. He talks about the fullness of God um, and how um, God has emanated his fullness to the world. And this is what he then says. He says, it appears reasonable to suppose that it was God's last end that there might be a glorious an abundant emanation of his infinite fullness of good. So is the Trinity experiencing something really good? Perfect relationship, perfect unity, perfect just what we're yearning for as creatures. This is going on eternally in the Trinity so that, the, so that he would emanate this outside himself and that the disposition to share himself or to diffuse his own fullness was what moved him to create the world. Edwards is wordy, so let me just put that in again in different language. There's such a good thing going on in the Trinity that God wanted to share this. And he made the world so that it can be included in this infinite, eternal, perfect happiness experienced in the three persons of one God. So, Lady Wisdom is, in Old Testament language, inviting us into this God, this relationship that was occurring before the creation of the world. And, most importantly, this relationship for which we were created to participate in. She says, I was forever, what does she say right here in verse 30? Um, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to be included in his love. He wants us to delight in him always. This is why we were made we were not created so that God could be loved by us. We were not created so that God could be loved by us. We were created so that we could be loved by God. Period. There was no need in the creator when he made everything. He wanted the overflow of his goodness to emanate and fill all things as he is full. That is why we exist. Therefore, Lady Wisdom's autobiography says, by me, kings reign. You want to reign in life? You need to understand the God who is co-eternally a three-in-one relationship. 
This is what you're being invited into. So in 8 verse 15, we saw this. By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. Decree. That's the Hebrew word, kwachach. I have no idea if I said that right. I'm pretty sure it's pretty close. Kwachach. In verse 29, you see the word reappear. It's different in English, though. 29, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out, that's krakak, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. So on one hand, in verse 15, kings are making laws. And then on the other hand, in verse 29, when God's making everything, he's making laws for the creation. The waters shall not pass this line. I'm making a decree. And so here's the truth. Here's what she's saying. By wisdom, God made order in the world. And so by wisdom, you will possess order in your life. By me, kings reign. No, you may not be destined to be the CEO of a company, the pastor of a church, the president of the United States, or the dictator of your own tyranny. You may not be destined for any of those things. You might just be you. <laughs> But this is what Lady Wisdom's saying. We are all, as daughters and sons of God, we are all put on this earth to be leaders in the sense that we understand why we were created and we are leading others into this relationship they were made for. So she stands at the street corners. She stands at the entrance of the gate. That's verses 2 and 3. Wherever the crowds of the people are to warn them, hey, in Eden, we were at one with God. But in this fallen world, we're doing our own thing. We're separate. We're divorced. We're rebelling. So she's going to those places of culture and saying, come out of human culture and come back to the garden. Come back to what God has made you for. Do you not know, Christian, that we were created in Eden, chapters Genesis one twenty six said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Why? So that they may have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the things that creep on the ground. By me, kings rule. We lost that dominion because we lost the fellowship with the triune God. Christ came to restore that for us. So 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world by me, king's reign. Revelation 5.10. Christ, you have made your people a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. By me, king's rule. God has given us his wisdom so that we can rule and order our lives that have been disordered by sin. We can know for what reason we exist. We can no longer be, we, we don't have to anymore be subjected to sin, to vices, to addictions, to lusts, to gluttony, to anger, and all the emotions that take us. We no longer have to be held by these things because through wisdom, through Christ, the wisdom of God, by me, kings rule. We are to reign in this life over sin and to show others that this is the way, this is what you're made for, relationship with the triune God. So brothers and sisters, when we worship the triune God, we participate. We participate in his life and his reign. 
when we worship him, we participate in his life and reign. Because here's what happens. When I come and I, when I come and I pray, I read the scriptures, I adore God, I worship him through song, whatever it is, when we come to him, we are emptying ourselves of glory. Emptying ourselves of glory. Here, have my life. Here, have the glory. Have the wor- You are worthy. We're giving ourselves to him. And in return, God fills us with his life, with his glory. The triune God comes into us. The Holy Spirit comes into us. That's what happens. So worship is our way to participate in his life and in his reign. And the result is that we have within us, we are drawn into God's infinite, God's eternal, God's perfect joy. This is what we have. So, wisdom can make the astonishing, almost arrogant claim that we were there before the creation of the world. And will be here forever and ever. Because we have been pulled into the God who was, the God who is, and the God who ever shall be world without end. There's no time for the Christian. We are pulled into eternity. Like Lady Wisdom, we get to delight with him, rejoicing before him always. Let's pray. promised helper and comforter, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord proceeding from the Father. As you rested on the...